Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode, Rosalie Post, a fellow anthropologist and advisor in the housing sector in the Netherlands, joins me in, in talking to Dan Wu, Privacy Council and Legal Engineer on Ethical AI, Inclusive Governance and Ideal Future Cities. Rosalie and Dan reflect on the concept of the ideal city and the ways we can use technology to achieve it. Dan points out that despite its benefits, technology can easily obscure its many disadvantages. We have not yet managed to accommodate the voices that lack resources and are excluded from participation. Can AI-generated data substitute those voices? And if so, what are the ethical ways to do that? How much progress has been done in making cities more inclusive in the last 60 years? We dive into a reflective exchange of cases famous in the history of city design and governance, from the ideologically focused emergence of Brasilia in Brazil to Taiwan's response to SARS. Lastly, Dan shares stories and initiatives that have helped cities move in the right direction and reflects on the way forward. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Dan Wu, Privacy Counselor and Legal Engineer, um, and Rosalie Post, uh, Anthropologist and Advisor in the Housing Sector in the Netherlands. Um, Rosalie will be my co-host for this episode. Um, so yeah, you won't be hearing much of me except for the beginning of this part. But hi Dan, hi Rosalie. Hi, I'm really excited to be here, thank you. Hi. Dan, before we dive into this, can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about your path um, so far? Absolutely. So I'm Privacy Counsel and Legal Engineer at Amuda, which is an automated data governance platform for analytics and artificial intelligence. So very simply, we help companies share data safely for the purposes of those use cases. Um, more generally, I care a lot about how law and technology can come together to create better cities, um, more inclusive cities. Um, so I would, my, my background's a bit winding, but I, uh, I was in school for a long time. I did a JD and a PhD at Harvard at the Kennedy School, uh, mixed cross between sociology and policy, looking at um, intersectoral collaborations for affordable housing, uh, went to law school, focused a lot on data and technology law, really ironically got interested in innovation during law school, which is not a common occurrence, and, um, and then just got very excited about how we could rework the legal system and help people navigate laws and do things, you know, protect people by default is sort of the thing that I'm really interested in and help people navigate, um, you know, regulations like housing and other, you know, specifically with my work, I focus on privacy regulations. Um, I spent some time at a law firm helping a lot of um, startups and now uh, do this sort of cross between law and product development at this, uh, you know, basically we are trying to operationalize data ethics and data privacy for companies so that it's easier for them to, to protect data by default. Um, my day-to-day -day work involves 
you know, getting smart on data regulations like GDPR and CCPA and healthcare regulations, data regulations, but also working with our software and data science team so that we can translate uh, legal requirements into product requirements. Wow, this sounds really cool. Um, before <laughs> we diving a little bit into the meat of your experience, um, which uh, I know Rosalie has prepared quite a bunch of cool questions. Um, Rosalie, can you also say a little bit about yourself uh, for those of our listeners that, that don't know you? Sure. Uh, my name is Rosalie and Corina and I work together a lot when we host a meetup together. But this is the first time I'm appearing on this podcast. Um, I work for a consultancy firm and we get hired by municipalities mainly or also ministries in the Netherlands to advise them about housing and we combine statistics and yeah, kind of policy advice, um, in those, um, projects. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, um, I just give the space to you now, Ros, to, to go deeper into Dan's experience on this, in this field. Thanks a lot. I think the main question for me that I would like to start with is like, could you say something about what the ideal future city looks like for you? This is such an interesting and cool question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, but I, I think for me, um, the ideal future city really starts with uh, trust and empowerment. Um, and I think trust um is built in three key ways, drawing from this really cool study by the OECD called the Trust Lab, where they looked at, um, you know, quote unquote, more objective and experimental measures of trust across countries. And it kind of, there were lots of different themes and findings, but I, I, I felt that it, you know, coalesced around three main sort of strategies. The first is this idea of um, a competent and responsive government uh, that is, you know, able to use technology and data and be more efficient, but also does that in a way that is more secure, that respects privacy, that respects civil liberties. And um, the one example that I think of um, that could be interesting for this is thinking about Estonia, where, you know, they're extremely digital first. Um, they have, they collect lots of different kinds of data. Yet at the same time, they have one of the strictest privacy regulations where if an official incorrectly um, or, you know, accesses data for the wrong purposes, There's actually criminal charges. We have we don't really have anything like that um, in the U.S. except for you know like very intentional um, things around healthcare or data regulation. So it's, I just thought it was really cool how you know there is that sense of security with that sense of responsiveness. I think the second component is this sense of challenging this feeling of powerlessness and uh, corruption that often can is really easy for countries to be vulnerable to, especially cultivating the most vulnerable and marginalized to be part of the city making process. And there are lots of really interesting, I mean, there are tons of examples on this, but there are a few examples that I think of, like one, one in particular is Porto Alegre's participatory budgeting process, where they made a really concerted effort to work with um, less, you know, less privileged groups to kind of get them involved and actually decide the, the purse strings of the city. Um, the World Bank identified that after community Uh, participatory budgeting was implemented, I think it was like a 25 times increase in the spend on affordable housing and infant mortality rates dropped, more spending on sanitation. I just think stuff like that is really important to build that trust and not just privileging the voice of those who have more resources. And then lastly, prioritizing 
evidence-based interventions to improve basic needs. I think one thing that's really common in the smart cities movement is that it's really easy to be excited about the next shiny thing. There's sort of the sense of AI because AI seems really cool and we want to be a city that's associated with AI. How do we make sure that actually, you know, there's some social science research. I'm not going to say it's that much, but there is a good amount of social science research looking at interventions that have been proven to work in the past that have more validation. For instance, um, housing first movement in the U.S. is really big where um, there's a movement to provide housing to those like who are homeless or at risk of homelessness um, before requiring them uh, to get and, 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 um, and then tackling tacking on supportive services like mental health and substance abuse treatment versus the other way, way around. And, um, and this idea of scaling up things that are working or building up on things that are working, I think are really, really critical. I'm nodding over here because I can relate to a lot of um, what you're saying. I feel like you touched on a, a number of very important things here. One, I would like to mention that Housing First in the Netherlands is also happening. And it's oh, great cool. because the results are amazing. Like they've been doing yeah. it in Finland for 10 years and right. it's really, really helping out. And now... Um, yeah, a lot of like national and, and local organizations here are also um, talking to the government about implementing housing first and it's it's uh, gaining momentum. So I think that's really cool. I, I really liked also what you said about not going after the the shiny thing as, uh, <laughs> as a city, because I this is, I think, something that many cities forget at times yeah. that that there's this beautiful promise of, of AI and, and data and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's kind of easy to, to forget the people who maybe aren't in the data. Could yeah. you say something about how in your vision, um, we can include the people who are, are busy surviving in the, in the best yeah. way? I would love to explore that with you and learn more about best practices around that. I think that's often, the response where, you know, my second my second strategy, I think, is this idea of making sure that even the most vulnerable and marginalized can co-create the city. Um, it's not just one person's ideal future city. I think the common retort to that is, hey, can you really expect someone that is working three jobs, you know, they're, they have to care for their family, they don't have childcare, can you expect them to take time out of their day to participate? Um, I think that's a really valid concern. And one thing that I think has been really interesting um, in the example of Minnesota, um, Minneapolis recently um, launched this really interesting community engagement project where their motto and principle was to go where people are naturally congregating and um, use that use that source as a place to do community engagement and participation and planning the city. Whereas in typical form, there's often like a really long planning process that happens like in the middle of the day or at night and you know people can't attend because it's really time consuming they're they flipped it on its head and it actually relates to some of the work by like paulo freire where he talks a lot about going to where people are and how you can create that benefit immediately and i really love that and what you know the, the leaders in minnesota's effort minneapolis's effort to reverse exclusionary zoning they cite that that strategy as a major shift in their ability to reverse exclusionary. And just to quick you, it's a very, I guess it's a U.S. maybe it's a U.S. specific thing, but exclusionary zoning is this idea of, you know, building, building and zoning codes that 
you know, tilt towards larger house sizes that require you to have a pool or a garage or like minimum curb lots that really increase the size of housing and the choice and variety of housing. Um, and Minnesota recently said, hey, let's actually re- realize that a lot of that um, fuels racial inequality and economic inequality, because that means people with fewer resources can't live in these opportunity rich neighborhoods. And then secondly, um, how do we um, create more choice? So how do we encourage things like more duplexes and triplexes that uh, maybe are more dense, but they can lower the barriers to entry for people to live in the neighborhood and allow more people to live, create some more supply. And so this was a pretty momentous thing. Um, exclusionary zoning is often seen as sort of a taken for granted in the U.S. And they're one of the first cities to kind of start with that racial justice lens and then reverse it. And I think a huge part of that was, you know, engaging all these people who are typically not part of the process and uh, making sure that they were part of that process, they were able to put coalitions with them. Can I ask a question? I feel like I'm a little bit bumping in um, because it really made me think you you make a lot of references down to to cases in Brazil. And uh, one of my favorite books that I I read uh, some time ago while I was studying anthropology was actually the case uh, about Brasilia and how Brasilia was built. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure. It was a book by an anthropologist that kind of went kind of like backwards uh, into but Brasilia, who is now the capital of Brazil. The whole city was built as a, as a big ideological project. So uh, the, the former capital, which, which was Rio de Janeiro, was, was never, let's say, a capital that the Brazilians, quote unquote, have chosen to build for themselves. So the government at the time thought we're going to build our own capital that reflects the society that we want to be. So it was kind of like an exercise in this is our ideology and we're going to build a city that reflects that. And we're going to put that city in the middle of the country to be able to, let's say, anchor the entire society. And the book kind mm-hmm. of follows the the failure of that exercise in, you know, mm-hmm. if you build an ideology based on an ideology, that means that people will follow that ideology or will embody it. Um, right. Let me give you an example. So um, um, they used um, a famous German architect. I, I hope I'm not butchering his name. It's called Niemeyer, um, I think yeah, that is Nie- his name. Niemeyer. Niemeyer, Niemeyer. yes. So uh, the the let's say the visuality of Niemeyer architectural is very like stark, very mm-hmm. um, like very like strong uh, geometrical kind of shapes, um, and his style of building spaces is not a style that that encourages sociality. It doesn't encourage places where people just sit together. It, it oh, he builds as he says he builds spaces with purpose, so that you <laughs> you are productive. His purpose. No, so that you are productive. Yeah. So you do no, no, exactly. space yeah. to the other. You don't linger in the space. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. that is something that was, let's say, a critique at the time on the Brazilian culture. Right. That is not productive. And if you look at like Brazilian cities, they, they do offer a lot of like uh, space for simple sociality, simply just being together and talking. And right. Running. So so that is a little bit, the, let's say, the ideology behind how um how at the time the planners uh, envisioned that space. And of course, the space ended up not being used as it was envisioned. (laughs) Yeah, that actually reminds me a lot of like the Robert Moses examples that are often brought up in the States where, you know, he had like this very specific purpose up to the degree where he would often use eminent domain to, you know, remove, you know, 
poor neighborhoods to build a freeway or something. And it was very based on his purpose and his vision for what an ideal city was. Mm-hmm. And this, I don't know how many analogies there really are, but it kind of sounds like this idea of like a very top down idea of this is what the city should be. And ideally hoping by structuring the physical environment in that way that people would follow mm-hmm. that goal. Um, I think that would challenge two things from from my perspective, which is the first is that where what was the participatory process in deciding what the purpose was? Um, one of the things that I often think about is, you know, technology plays a really critical role, like it helps makes our lives more convenient or more efficient. But I think technology also has the danger of making us um, uncritically accept the purposes for what that technology was created for. Like we shouldn't ever automate the, the automate the questions of why are we building this and like what are the trade-offs um, we're making as a result of building this. And I think that his goal of, you know, very specific purpose, et cetera, there wasn't that, I, I, I imagine there wasn't that sort of participatory aspect of like, why are we, why is this the goal? Why is efficiency the goal? Uh, maybe some some sort of like being together is actually a really good thing. It builds community, it builds relationships and things like that. And so I, 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 I feel like it's actually um, could be oppositional to, you know, Porto Alegre's, you know, mission of participatory budgeting of like, it's almost more radically democratic and empowering. And so that is like the vision of the city that I think um, is more interesting to me. Thank you. If I can add a little bit to both of what you are talking about, because uh, Oscar Niemeyer and, and Robert Moses were actually both influenced by the same person, uh, oh, okay. Le Corbusier. All right, so, right. Um, so you're both right. And actually, the ideas are exactly the same, even if you're not familiar with each other's examples. Yeah. Um, and for example, in New York, talking about Robert Moses, Jane Jacobs, um, yes. the anthropologist from the 60s, was one of the people who pointed out that this was not participatory at all. And mm-hmm. and I think in many ways, I don't know if you agree, Dan, but some of the work that I think anthropologists who work in cities are doing today was inspired by, for example, Jane Jacobs, who went yeah. to the park in the middle of, of the afternoon where all the mothers were walking around with the children in the in the um, in the in the children carriage. What's it called? Yeah. Baby carriage. The stroller. Stroller, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and 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 she staged a protest there because she right. said these people are already here with the stroller and they actually have time to partake in my protest. Exactly. And uh, and we actually need this park. Look, because we're all strolling around in it with our Absolutely. babies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I need to look for, you know, so I agree with that. I, I feel like Jane Jacobs is like that, that, you know, oppositional person to Robert Moses. Do you know what her track record around racial justice was at the time? Do you know, for instance, um, like sort of the stories and movies that I've reflect on her, she, it, it feels, it sometimes feels very like, um, you know, she's obviously white and more uh, privileged, educated. Do you know what she did to kind of make sure that she was also diversifying her networks, making sure that she was engaged with potentially, you know, some, like civil rights movement at the time or marginalized communities? Because I, I think I ultimately, I think I agree with you. I also think that it's it's also important when we think about our democracy 
to make sure that we're also including those that don't have privilege. And how do we do that in a way? And I think this, you know, ties to your earlier question. How do we do that in a way when, you know, they're busy surviving? How do we make sure that um, they, they, they can do that? And um, the people who are at the park at the time with their strollers, they probably have a certain amount of privilege. They have the time to even be at the park. And I think it's yeah. interesting, you know, those choices are really interesting on what she might choose, be choosing to protect. And so yeah. I, I, that would be the only other question that I would raise. But I think in principle, I agree with you. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think Jane Jacobs did this in the 60s and she was in many ways part of the first feminist wave, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, or the second, depending on which academic tradition <laughs> you follow, but that one with the citizens' uh, rights in the 60s. Um, uh, I, I, from what I know, from the book she, she wrote about it that I read, she, she explicitly tried to also get the nannies involved, um, mm-hmm. with the stroller. So in that sense, maybe there was some, yeah. some mm-hmm. question, but I think her first thing was also, we want to stop people from demolishing this particular park. And so she Absolutely. focused on whoever was in that yeah. park. But I also Absolutely. feel like this kind of demonstrates in a way, a search that we've had in in how we design cities for the past 50 or 60 years. Brasilia was built in in 1955, 1960. Mm -hmm. Um, Jane Jacobs was protesting in 62. Now we are 60 years later, and I think we are still somehow, some city governments are still struggling with the question how can we include these people who might not have time to show up on an afternoon meeting between 1 and 3 p.m. Yeah. or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. maybe just to hook on that, because it ties beautifully into my into my anthropology master thesis. Um, I did oh, my great. thesis and, yeah, in, in the Neumarkt, who's a, this, a neighborhood in Amsterdam that is quite um, has a very strong Chinese community. And uh, the the the, I was I was actually interested in participation and how the government engaged with these various groups to make decisions for the neighborhood, and Newmark has what what is let's say the only let's say uh, uh, Chinatown of uh, of Amsterdam, so which is a very long for Amsterdam street. Um, that has a lot of restaurants that are specifically Chinese, but also the street itself has an aesthetic that is um, specifically Chinese. So at the time that I was doing my research, the local government was trying to engage with the Chinese business community and the residents because they were... um, they were passing on legislation that would, let's say, regulate the aesthetics of, of, of spaces in Amsterdam. So they wanted to, mm-hmm. let's say, know um, the opinion of these groups. And it was very difficult for them to uh, get them to participate in any of these mm-hmm. meetings. I'm right, not to say right. that they did that they did a lot of mm-hmm. effort uh, in trying to uh, bring them in and in, in speaking also with the other residents of the neighborhood they, that were completely against having this group's perspective because they said, you know, my Amsterdam is not the picking duck in the window. If, if I want, <laughs> if I, and it was about aesthetics, huh? it was about aesthetics yes. and, and how a specific aesthetic is not mine. Uh, and it's from another land and, and I'm here in my city and I, this is not me. So it was very strong, this kind of aesthetic tension uh, of exclusion. I found very interesting. So I went and I'm going to finish my long comment. I went with a with the Chinese business community and tried to understand why weren't they at the council meetings. Mm, cool. Okay. Uh, and 
I, I ended up talking to a few of the of the representatives of the business community and and was very interesting for me because they were first generation um, um, in the country. Mm. For them, governmental participation uh, had a completely different um, shape. So for them, they they just did not understand. He one of these guys I was talking was telling me, well. I'm sitting here doing my work, making money, paying my taxes. Why do I need to? Why do I need to go there? That I, I trust that the government uh, takes the right decisions for me. Why do I need? Why do I need to go there? It's a waste of time, my time and the government's time. So it struck me as kind of, yeah. It w- would it be maybe a, a cultural difference? Maybe I, like how mm. do different groups and different cultures look into this concept of participation and engaging with the government? That's that's a fantastic question. Um, I I this isn't my area of expertise, but it's something I really think is interesting. It reminds me of a case study that I read about Taiwan, and um, obviously there's they share a lot of similar cultural you know similarities, and um, it was a case study looking at Taiwan's response to SARS. Um, and like, what are the lessons we can learn from COVID-19? And, you know, there's often this sense that I think similar to what you're, what you're kind of pointing out is a sense of deference almost, or like trust in the government, um, believing that, you know, maybe they'll just do the right things for me. Um, I think what's kind of interesting is at least in Taiwan during SARS, um, again, different group of people, but, you know, these are people who've been living in Taiwan. There was actually a lot of distrust initially uh, when they were rolling out various social distancing and vaccination measures. Um, there were cries around corruption and believing that um, they were mismanaging the vaccination process. Like maybe if you get vaccinated, there was like this high profile example of this person who got vaccinated and uh, their child got vaccinated and that child died or something. And that got like shared a lot and people are not. Um, not complying with the government. Um, what that case study ended up saying, and again, I don't know the veracity of these claims, but I thought it was interesting, is that they then initiated this new sort of like participatory framework where they um, had a, like a state-sponsored community organizer. It was someone that represented their little neighborhood that was um, uh, paid for by the government, and that person. Essentially, like it wasn't called a community organizer, but it's essentially that where they would be working on the ground to build relationships with that community. They would often be a person of that community, in fact. And then they would be that interface with the government uh, to kind of make sure that things on the ground and surface up like some of the concerns and things like that early on. And what at least what the article claimed was that this sort of like bottom up state sponsored community organizing, which has its own risks. Right. Um, is that community organizer truly could be independent? Um, that article claimed that that ended up surfacing a lot of issues early on and helped them navigate the Taiwan's Taiwanese government's response to SARS and build more trust. Um, in addition to, of course, the Taiwanese government ended up spending millions more on public health initiatives. Of course, you can't separate that. But I just thought that was interesting because. We don't, I think there was a point in our history, like in the 60s or something, I've been meaning to look into this, where governments actually like hired community organizers, but that's not a common model. But I just thought that was interesting that that was the model that the Taiwanese government sort of defaulted to, to kind of build trust 
because they, were, they faced a lot of difficulty during the, their SARS response. I think that's incredibly interesting. And also, it comes with a lot of nuance, what you're saying, because I think especially also the fact that they had the community organizers and they had the big bags of money that were yes. actually spent on public health. Exactly. It's a very so critical combination. Yes. And the fact that it was a temporary, because I'm assuming that because SARS was a temporary state of being, that this community organizer was probably a temporary job, like for a couple of years, maybe at the most. In Amsterdam, we had a program uh, about 10 or 20 years ago before I worked in the city um, that revolved around um, neighborhood mayors, they called it. Mm -hmm. And the neighborhood mm -hmm. mayor was a person who was paid by the municipality to represent the neighborhood in right. participatory processes. And in some neighborhoods, what ended up happening was that that person became the one who had access to resources like subsidies right. and funds, like who knew how to apply for the right uh, budget to get the right. money for the right kind of thing. And then there were often neighborhoods with a lot of different ethnicities and the mayor person had one ethnicity. Right. And so this actually ended up escalating in some parts because right. the person was not representing everyone in the neighborhood. Right. And I think one of the main problems that underlies that is that there were too many people in the neighborhood who, who were in need of things. And and then you have to compete for things. Yes. And then competition resources. happens maybe along, you know, ethnic lines or maybe along other community lines. But but I think the problem underneath would be that they're competing. And I think similarly, not having state sponsored community leaders or organizers, um, which, because in many neighborhoods in Amsterdam, for example, just to take Amsterdam as an example, but the, um, the, the neighborhood mayors are not sponsored anymore now, but they mm. still know everybody, like right. in the municipality. Right, so in right. a way, they are still the people who show up to all the daytime meetings and right. constantly give their opinion about people or, or not about people, but about um, <laughs> plans for the, yeah. for the yeah, neighborhood. Yeah. You know, should we have a park there? Should we have a Absolutely. road there? Um, and so I think it also sometimes actually discourages other citizens from participating because they might feel like, the same group of five people from their neighborhood always are the loudest at the meeting. Therefore, there's yes. no point in in also coming to the meeting. You know, or this is something I, I saw during field work that I did in Amsterdam. So what I'm wondering, and this is a genuine question because I know a lot less about data than you do. I've been wondering for a long time if there are these people that are really disadvantaged and they really or maybe they don't want to participate or culturally they are not interested or for whatever reason, can we substitute their participation in person with data mm -hmm. somehow? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That kind of goes to that idea of the participation ladder. I think that you post an email back and forth. Like there's, there's sort of that spectrum, uh, which you two are familiar with of this idea of like in the smart city, you can have a person just simply being like a data source, I guess. And, you know, the city, in some ways, that's kind of like what COVID-19 contact tracing is. Uh, you go around the city 
and the city just mines your phone or, you know, that data gets shared to kind of get more intel, intel around your ability, uh, your exposure to potential uh, to COVID-19. And I think on the far end, um, it's sort of this idea of like co-creator, how can the person, um, all the way from like creating those sensing technologies to deciding the purposes of them, um, how does that person get involved? And I think going back to your, your question, I think is pointing out this idea of assume that the person doesn't want to, potentially in the case of the master's thesis of the Chinese community, or maybe they don't fully understand what's at stake. That might also be a problem. It might be like a cultural barrier. Um, or um, assume they just don't want to, don't have time. Can we fill in with other types of data that we could supplement? I definitely think that's happening already um, in the sense of like COVID-19 tracing. Mm -hmm. The question is, um, what are the accountability measurements to make sure that those data flows are being shared in a private and secure way? Um, and then secondly, are not infringing on people's liberties, like privacy rights, and they're not being used for purposes outside their scope. A lot of that is like almost deference to hoping that the government or um, private sector actor that creates the app is doing the right thing. There's a, there's a question of accountability and transparency. Um, third, there's also the possibility, maybe one of the middle grounds between these two um, ends of the spectrum are using digital tools to help people get involved more quickly. So, for instance, uh, there was an interesting case study of, uh, I think they're called City Zen or Urban Zen. And what they do is they look at social media and other like public data sources um, and um, use that to help develop more nuanced government responses. So like they have one case study where um, they're working with a city government in Israel that was trying to build bus rapid transit. And of course, bus rapid transit um, is complicated politically because you might be removing car lanes that people would otherwise be using and taking them out and making them only for buses. Um, of course, there's a lot of logic to doing that. Because not everyone can afford a car and it's more environmentally sustainable. But of course, people who um, drive cars primarily may get really angry, thinking that there's going to be a lot more traffic now for these buses. They um, use these analytics um, after this was proposed, mined a bunch of social media and realized that there was some misunderstanding around um, how this, this bus system was going to work, how many lanes it was going to take. Um, take and then like what the benefits were like people just apparently didn't understand like what the benefit of a bus rapid transit system would be and how it could actually decrease traffic and so they mined that and then actually formulated a new government response uh, uh, policy and communications based on that data and again this is I don't I haven't verified the accuracy of this but the case study goes that as a result of this new uh, mining and understanding of people's reactions on social media, um, it went from majority against to majority pro. So that I thought that was interesting use of data that's not super time consuming. People are already expressing their frustrations on social media in a public way, and governments dynamically using that to formulate a more nuanced response. If we if we can, I would love to have a chance to talk a little bit more about city governments, the way we are yeah. already talking about it. Because I think um, 
you rightfully picked up that my question was more an ethical one than anything else, right? Yeah. I work with policy advisors in municipalities and in, 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 in national government who have the best intentions in the world and really, really want to understand what the people in the neighborhood need. But mm -hmm. if the people don't show up to the meeting, they might not know what to do. And then they ask me, like, can we then use sensing data, tracking data to substitute, substitute mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. them showing up for the meeting? And I think you rightfully point out that there are ethical ways to do that in, in this example, for example, with the social media is a little bit tricky with GDPR here in Europe, but yeah. if you have a good social scientist who has signed an ethical code, I think you could get away with it yeah. as a government yeah. to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. More generally, and, though, and potentially like removing things like direct identifiers, and you know, potentially using aggregation. You know, there's there's a set of tools that people could use to reduce the risks. Yeah, sorry, keep sure, yeah. but I, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. I was yeah. assuming that they were going to use those risks because otherwise yeah. it wouldn't be GDPR approved. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we, I think we have both stated or observed in earlier work that they can be a little bit stifling sometimes right. when it comes to creating good future cities. Um, and they're also not always very good at um, harvesting data and, and making it secure. So, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. How can we help them better, maybe? Or how can we create better cities? How can we work with city governments? And if it's, and, and if it's not possible, then how can we uh, develop these things in terms of like using data in an ethical way and really trying to make participatory processes work so that mm -hmm. in the end, the, the, um, the citizen is, is partially in charge of their their community and their city and how it's developing. Do you think we can do that with the city government or do you think mm. we can do it in spite of the city government? I guess my preference would be to do it with the city government and, um, and, but I think trying to address some of the limitations of working with cities um, and being really, I think, I think, I think the first thing, so I'm reminded of a case study of um, health data, sh of sharing health data to address the social determinants of health. And this was a case study that happened in Ohio. And what happened there was they wanted to understand um, how those who were going through the criminal justice system, how they were interfacing with um, mental health um, and also emergency room visits. And so there's clearly city and the city was a big partner there. Um, and the city was an important partner because they had access to the criminal justice data and they had access to um, the public health data, but they also wanted to work with the, um, the, the nonprofit private sector hospitals and emergency rooms. And so to that, to that problem, I actually think that the city's involvement was critical and in fact necessary to understand how those systems interacted. Um, what, one of the things that I think really struck me about the way that they approached that health data sharing program was to, there were a few things. The first thing was that they diversified who led that project. So it wasn't just the city or it wasn't just the hospital saying, we're going to do this. Um, they built a coalition in the very beginning that had a representative from 
the public health department and emergency review department and uh, the criminal justice system, they sat on a committee and they tried to make sense together around what were what was broken about the system now. And then they also there was also like a judge on the committee with people of legal experience. And so they also uh, made sense together. They did like an impact assessment of what were some of the legal risks and ethical risks of sharing that data and thinking really systematically about it. And I think it was a huge advantage that they had people thinking about data regulations from the beginning. And then they also uh, started really small. They, uh, they made really, going back to your point about sharing data ethically, um, they made sure that they, um, they were only going to share, like I think there was like six key fields that they wanted and that there was going to be a trusted third party who would receive the data, um, de-identify it by removing all the direct identifiers, um, aggregate it, and then send it back to the committee. So they had sort of this like trusted third party process. And so I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that I think in a lot of these complex questions, when we're especially trying to understand the, the role of context that plays a role in people's outcomes, like social determinants of health, I think the city is going to be an inevitable actor. Mm-hmm. And in fact, cities increasingly want to be part of the picture. If we see the fight that's happening between Uber and the scooter companies in L.A., where the L.A. city government is demanding this, and it's quite an oppositional relationship now, these the, the, these startups are suing the city. I don't think that's a good use of public resources and private resources. Ideally, we would find a way to have built that standardization and uh, commonality from the beginning. Of course, that's idealistic, and that's not always going to happen. But um, I think if you start building these coalitions from the beginning and make sense together, you're going to only increase your chances of doing that versus doing something in spite of the city. And then the city's like, oh, what's going on? We didn't know about this. Like now we're demanding it's more of a reactive process. I think it's expensive for companies, though, to do the more proactive process. But I think it's necessary um, as we move forward with this next wave of uh, digitization in smart cities and doing, especially doing this in an equitable and uh, democratic way, I think is critical. Dan, this has been a great interview. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. And um, yeah, looking forward to having you again. This was phenomenal. Thank you so much for the time. And I would love to continue the conversations. This was a lot of fun. And I really appreciate your insights and engagement here. Thank you so much, both. Dan, thank you so much for this talk. It was really nice. And um, let's talk about the other questions in future. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.